welcome to Citizen Dame, a podcast where four women film critics gather to talk about film and television and Hollywood news and all kinds of fun stuff. So, this is episode five. I'm Karen Peterson, and here with me as always is Lauren Humphreys-Brooks. Hello. And Kimberly Pierce. Hello. Once again, Kristen Lopez is out cavorting and committing nefarious acts. Who knows what she's doing this time? She may or may not be back with us next week. We're still trying to figure that out, schedules permitting and whatnot. But the three of us are doing just great without her, you know? So <laughs> we're having a good time. We do miss her, though, because she's fun of and course. stuff. We so, miss you, Kristen. That's right. Yes. So we're going to go ahead and start off this week with, you know... That old favorite topic. What are we watching lately? So, Kimberly, what have you been watching this week? You know, I've been dusting off and having an absolute blast with the... I've been getting them at Best Buy, but I don't know who's been... If those are exclusive to them. There's been a bunch of new prints of the Universal Horror movies coming out. The old Universal franchises. Mm -hmm. And the kind of the most recent ones I've been watching have been The Wolfman and The Invisible Man and Creature from the Black Lagoon. Fun! And just, um, like, the Wolfman one is absolutely packed with some just fascinating special features that I've just been completely nerding out over, looking at Lon Chaney Jr.'s career and the background of all these movies, and it's just been an absolute blast. Kind of, I haven't watched some of these in so long that it's been fun to get it, you know, get those watched again awesome how about you Lauren? well like many people i've been watching a lot of horror films and this this week i uh one of my favorite newer experiences for me has been watching mario bava films and so i got to this this past weekend we watched um bay of blood which is just the net it's it's considered to be sort of a proto slasher film uh it's it's one of the nastiest most ridiculous and most enjoyable movies i have seen it's just it's hilarious and every like it's it's like constant murder for no apparent reason for about an hour and a half nice and yeah it's just like if you most people who enjoy bava have seen this movie that's why i finally sat down and watched it but man he's like he's crazy <laughs> Awesome. Well, starting at the beginning of the year, my mom and I have been going to the TCM Fathom events every month, and they do classic films, and it's been so much fun. And last night, actually, we went to the Fathom screening of The Princess Bride, which my mom had never seen The Princess Bride. And I was just like, I don't know how that happened. I don't know why she didn't take us to see it in 1987 when it came out. And but I was gonna say, how does how do you miss that? Right. One? But yeah, somehow she had never seen it, and so I was just like, okay, we're going. You're doing this, and so I dragged her to see it, and of course she loved it because how can you not? And and it was so funny because after it was over, I was just like, so does that put some things in context for you? Because my brother and I like we quote movies all the time we'll just be sitting there and randomly just throw a movie quote at each other and you know and and we don't say like oh that's from the princess bride or oh that's from this movie we just like give another quote from the same movie to acknowledge that we know what movie it's from (laughs) and so we've done that with the princess bride over the years and now she finally gets it so it was really fun and it had a, a great interview with um ben minkowitz and rob reiner at the beginning and after the movie was over they had like 
kind of bookended interviews. So it was a lot of fun to get some more insight into the film and learn some fun facts that I somehow had never heard. So hard to believe that movie is 30 years old, but anyway, uh-huh. lots of fun. That's really cool. Yeah. So, all right, let's move into some news. So last week we covered this little story out of Hollywood um, you might have heard about. <laughs> so this week there's been a lot more, of course, about Harvey Weinstein and the fallout from that and everything that has happened. And so many women have just come out from everywhere to say, yeah, it happened to me. And a lot of them have been about Harvey, but others have been about other people too, like to be Hedron coming out and talking about Hitchcock. Yeah. Who are some of the other ones we were just talking about? There's just been a mm-hmm. bunch. Like, uh, well, I, I mentioned I mentioned before we began recording Bjork mm-hmm. uh, talking about being harassed by a certain Danish filmmaker. She did not name names, but I think we, we all know that I believe that Bjork has only made one film with a Danish filmmaker. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to narrow that one down. So... So, you know, she didn't, which, again, it was one of those that when I read it, I was just like, well, that's the least surprising thing I've heard in a long time. <laughs> you know, the, the Tippy Hedren thing is one of those things that's sort of been talked about and is, I mean, they made a movie about mm-hmm. it a couple years ago. So it's it's been pretty much a, a an open discussion for a long time. But yeah, this... The stuff just keeps on coming out. And then, of course, we all, we have all of the, the people that are already known, people like Polanski and Woody Allen, who have already been accused. Well, I mean, Polanski was Polanski can't come back into the country because of it, right. but Woody Allen has been accused mm-hmm. of, uh, of molestation and assault. Right. One of the things that really was a big thing that happened in all this was... Ben Affleck, you know, of course, oh, wow, you know, I owe so much of my career to Harvey Weinstein. I can't believe he did this. I had no idea. And then, of course, um, Rose McGowan was like, "Uh, actually, you did know that years ago when I told you about it and you already knew about it then. So that was that turned into a big Twitter war. And so you've got all these people that are coming out and saying, oh, I had no idea, even though they really did. Did you guys hear Jane Fonda's interview? No. Oh my gosh. Okay, so Jane Fonda, I think, was one of the most honest people in all of this as far as, like, she... F- so she gave an interview to CNN. I think it was CNN. And she was talking about Rosanna Arquette had had talked to her. And something had happened with Harvey Weinstein and her, like, years ago. And so Jane Fonda said she found out about this about a year or so ago. And so she's known, and but she said that the reason she didn't come forward and say anything was because it wasn't her story to tell, and she didn't feel like it was her place to talk about it, because it didn't happen to her. Yeah. And she feels really, she said, in her own words, she said that she feels ashamed that she didn't say something, but at the same time, it's like, where is the right. line? Where are? Where is that point where you're supposed to talk for someone else, you know? So it's like, I completely get where she's coming from. And I feel like there are a lot of people that are in denial mode right now saying they didn't know who really did, but are more in Jane Fonda's shoes. But it's like, why don't they just say that? Well, I mean, there's been a little bit of that and, and there's even more of it during years ago during the Farachi and Knowles scandals. 
Um, <laughs> but it, but the same kind of reactions of just like, well, it wasn't my story to tell, which, which is a, I think it's one of those, it is one of those questions where, okay, it's not your, it's not your story to tell. I, I have, I wouldn't know, but I have a strong suspicion that probably Roseanne Arquette may have simply said to Jane Fonda, I don't want you to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the kind of thing that has to be said in confidence. And yeah, you, even in an individual level, if you talk to a friend who's been assaulted, you don't think like, okay, now I have to go and tell the police about it. But at the same time, you want to encourage your friend to actually be like, you need to do something. This has to stop. We, you know, I'll support you in doing that. So it's a very, I don't know, man, it's a very troubling line. And, and at what point, given that, that Weinstein has basically functioned all of this time on people not talking about it. Right. People knowing about it, but not being like, oh, by the way, Harvey is, is a rapist. Mm-hmm. Well, and then it turns out, I haven't been able to actually find the printed details of this, but then there's that whole thing about what was in his contract with the Weinstein company. Oh, that is, I, I haven't seen it in print either, but that is really disturbing to hear some of that. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, if he has a case against him, he only is on the line for this amount. Ba- basically acknowledging that they were aware that it was happening and this was such so commonplace that it was apparently written into his contract that he had written protections and it's like what lawyer wrote that you know like it's ridiculous i also thought it was interesting that his brother bob weinstein has been pretty quiet which doesn't surprise me i mean it's his brother what's he gonna say you know but um the other day he came out and said that he's spoken with Harvey and he has, he shows no remorse. And so for Bob, that's like the worst part of it is that everyone knows what his brother did, but he's not even sorry. He's still not even sorry with everything that's happened. He's looking at this as this is just what's happening to him. He's not even, he does not even care what he's done to people. Well, and you see that in every like all of the, and he hasn't really done interview interviews. Right. Uh, I don't think since all of this has come out, but every, like every press release, every time he has spoken, it's basically been like, you know, I hope you, I hope that the industry will not abandon me. I hope that they will not, you know, shut me out. All of this stuff that it's been like, do you realize that you've ruined people's lives? Do you realize that you've ruined women's careers and that, they have lasting scars as a result of what you have done. Like nothing this, I mean, he's a sociopath Mm -hmm. like that. That's the only thing that you can understand from all this is that it's obviously only about the fact that he got caught. Right. He's not sorry that he did any of it. He's not sorry that anyone else suffered because of him. He's upset that he got caught and now he's, you know, out of a job. His trip to rehab reads to me just for this to blow over. Yeah. Well, well and the his... whole thing, oh, I'm, I'm sex addicted. It's just like, no, that's not what sex addiction is. No. That ra- going around raping people is not sex no, addiction. No, people that are addicted to sex don't, if, you know. Uh, he's been, do- he's so been doing this for how many, 20, 20 plus years? No, he's yeah. not. He's not sorry. He's only sorry he got caught. Exactly, which is what we were talking about last week too, with the Weinstein company kicking him out, 
you know, that was another thing. Like, they didn't do that because he did it. They did that because we found out about it, you know? And, um, I mean, clearly, they had some knowledge if they allowed him to have this contract, which I found. TMZ says that the contract says to Weinstein, you will pay the company liquidated damages of $250,000 for the first such instance, 500000 for the second such instance, 750000 for the third such instance, and $1 million for each additional instance. As long as he paid agreed-upon settlements to his accusers, he could theoretically retain his job no matter how many women filed suit against him. So basically, if he's rich enough, he can just buy his way out of anything. Exactly. exactly. Well, and that's why he's not sorry. He figures eventually this is going to blow over. It's just, it's so blatant. Mm -hmm. And it's so, like, everything that's ever been said about rape culture, and particularly about the rape culture of Hollywood, but even just the the culture in general, of, like, if you're rich enough, if you're rich, white, and male, you really can get away with just about anything. Mm -hmm. And... And Weinstein did for years and years and years. And, you know, who the hell knows? He may he may be brought back into the fold again, you know, and it might not be next year, but it could be in a couple of years. Come back, open his own open his own company again. You know, it's I could see him easily trying something like that. Would he have the support? I think this is where Hollywood needs to put up or shut up. This is just where everybody is coming out and you know, we're, everybody's taking their stand. They've, you know, voted him out. Was it the Motion Picture Academy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're, everybody is speaking with one voice right now that this is something, this is an issue that needs to be fixed. This is a problem with Hollywood. This is an issue that needs to stop. So we need to, you know, this, they need to continue speaking with one voice on this. Yeah. Well, okay. So just thank you for reminding me. So point of, just where we're at. So Ampus, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences that does the Oscars, they voted, they had an emergency board meeting on Saturday. They voted with substantially more than two thirds of the required vote. They did not say it was unanimous, but it was definitely enough. So he's expelled from the Academy. He's only the second person ever to be expelled from the Academy. The first was someone who did something completely different. (laughs) So, um, that was starts with a C. He was Caridi. Caridi, that's it. Okay, yeah. So the uh, the first one was just a couple of years ago. It was Carmine Caridi, and he was kicked out because he was making available his for your consideration screeners, which is a huge no no. That's why he was kicked out. He was the first person ever to be expelled from the Academy. Second is Harvey Weinstein. So yeah, kind of a <laughs> interesting history that they have. But anyway, so he's out. Today, the Producers Guild also moved forward in the first, they took the first steps to expel him as well from the Producers Guild. Now, he's not out yet. He gets to, like, issue a statement or something. I don't know. There's a process for them. It's not just a vote. But yeah, so they they took steps for that today. So one of the things that I was going to say too is someone earlier this week said that they see this situation as sort of like Hollywood's version of the collapse of the Berlin Wall where it was like I mean that completely changed everything about the way things were working in Europe and 
it completely collapsed communism in Eastern Europe. And, and ultimately, it was the right thing and it was a great thing, but for a while, things got worse before they got better. And so I'm looking at everything that's going on and all the names that are coming out, and I'm like, you know, I mean, I don't think that's a completely bad comparison because I do see it a little bit like that. The thing is, what is Hollywood going to do with Harvey Weinstein out? Are they going to actually make these changes or are they going to just kind of try to keep the peace until it goes back to business as usual? Well, one of the things that, you know, you mentioned the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences um, and that a number of people have pointed out that I hate to be pessimistic, but I might be, is that so Weinstein gets kicked out for this kind of behavior. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Bill Cosby is still a member. Mm -hmm. Mel Gibson mm -hmm. is still a member. Roman Polanski is still a member. Woody Allen is still a member. Woody Allen is not a member. He's not a member. No, nope, he Ooh, never I was. didn't know that. Yeah, I've, I didn't I've heard know that, that a few times, yeah. Uh, okay, so Woody Allen's not still a member. Anyway, so so all of these people are still members. They weren't kicked out. You know, it's the, the I mean, I really struggle with Polanski, man, because I love his films, but it's his, his crime has been known for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, they never saw fit to, to kick him out. They have not seen fit for all of the things that, that Mel Gibson has done. They've never seen fit to kick him out. Hell, he was nominated for an Oscar last year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Polanski uh, won an Oscar years after. Well, he, he couldn't attend the ceremony because he can't come yeah. back to the country. So Yeah, exactly. So there's a big question mark there. So, like, are... It's, it's, it's again, the, the whole, well, he got caught kind of attitude of, like, okay, so there's been this massive public outcry against Weinstein. I mean... You know, in some ways, we're kind of mired in film Twitter, and so it's not always clear what other people are talking about. But this has been in the New York Times and the New Yorker, like people that I know who have nothing to do with film or not interested in film know about this. Mm -hmm. They know what's been going on. They've read the articles. They've seen all that. This has been big. Right. But because because it's been so big, it seems to have been the reaction of Hollywood has been like, okay, we're just going to purge ourselves of him. Why, you know, why not Bill Cosby? Why not Roman Polanski? Why not any of these other people? Why has this been, like, just this, and then does that mean we're just going to move back to to the way that it has always been? You know, until until they're willing to actually say this, we just have no tolerance, then this sort of shit is going to keep on going on. Exactly. That's my, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. Jeffrey Katzenberg, did you hear about the letter that he wrote to Harvey Weinstein? I heard no, I it, but heard I can't quote it. I can't speak to it well. Okay. Yeah. I just I just pulled it up. So, apparently, when all of this was breaking last weekend, Weinstein was reaching out to some people, like, just grasping for, you know, people to come to his rescue. And one of the people he contacted was Jeffrey Katzenberg. And so Katzenberg took a few days and thought about his response and... Before he even sent it, apparently he sent it to a couple of other people and said, like, what do you think of this? Am I, you know, should I send this or what? Anyway, he ultimately sent the, the email back to Harvey and also released it. So the context of the, or the content of the email is pretty short, but I'll, um, I'll go ahead and read it. Because I think there's some really in, in, important things that we're talking about here that, that he points out. 
It says, hey, Harvey, here's the bottom line. You stated in your email below that, quote, a lot of the allegations are false, as you know. Well, actually, I don't know. And given the timing of the circumstances, I have no way of knowing. However, you yourself in your quotes have acknowledged that you have behaved inappropriately. So it seems to me we are now down to degrees of horrible. That's actually one of the things that I wanted to point out, because I was just thinking about when you were talking about this, Lauren, like, with Roman Polanski and Bill Cosby and now Harvey Weinstein, like, it seems like we're talking about degrees of horrible. Because yeah. the reason I think, and this is, you know, speculation on my part, but I think one of the reasons that people have kind of let go of the Roman Polanski thing as far as allowing his movies to still be shown in American in cinemas so that they're still eligible for awards is because what he did was, as far as we know, very limited in scope. We only know of one person that he was, you know, he only confessed to raping one girl 45 years ago. Yeah. And she was only 13. Not a big Hollywood person, you know, starlet. And then you've got Bill Cosby, who did, you know, how many victims did he have? Like 50 or something, ultimately. But where has Bill Cosby been over the last several years? Like, mm -hmm. he's not the power player that Harvey Weinstein is. I am not in any way excusing Roman Polanski or Bill Cosby. I'm saying what I think is happening here is that people don't see those situations as having the same magnitude. And that's why they're finally reacting to Harvey Weinstein when they haven't reacted to those others. Because they don't see them as having the same scope. Yeah, I, that, that makes sense to me. I mean, the, the other thing that, you know, and this has been talked about in different forms for, for quite a while, is um, the issue of separating the art from the artist. You know, can you watch? And so, like I'm saying, you know, I've, I've thought about my, my love of Polanski's work because I do, there's no what you, it's difficult to watch Chinatown and to not be like, this is an absolutely brilliant piece of art. At the same time, to know that it is being made by someone who, who did commit a horrific crime and admitted to it, you know, he never denied that he, he did this. Uh, this was never a he said, she said, this was just like, this absolutely happened. Mm -hmm. And that and that is one of the other differences between many of the other people that we're talking about who haven't been expelled from the academy um, versus someone like Weinstein is that Weinstein is not an artist. Right. Weinstein has driven art in some way. He's been responsible for other people right. making art, but he has never been. He's not a director. He's not a screenwriter. He's not a writer. He's not a visual artist. This. He's not an actor. This is someone who does not drive the artistic nature of Hollywood or the artistic nature of film at all. Like, mm -hmm. it's just about who he gives mm -hmm. money to, basically. Right. And that has been very influential, definitely. But so, to say, to be able to, you can't really separate, you can't really say, well, I like Harvey Weinstein's films, but not Harvey Weinstein, because Harvey Weinstein doesn't really have any films. Exactly. And we, we talked about that on Circuit Breaker over the weekend, the other podcast I do. Clayton, who runs it, he was asking us, like, can you still watch films that were produced by Harvey Weinstein? And that was exactly, I was just like, if he were a director, I would have a bigger struggle with it. Um, I would really think long and hard about that. But he's only the money behind it. He's not the creative right. force. And so for me, this is definitely something I can separate. With Polanski, it's different for me. I, I do not seek out his films because I just, you know, because of experiences I've had in my own life, I can't, I just can't do it. But with Harvey Weinstein, 
yeah, he profited off of movies that I went and saw, and that's frustrating, but that's stuff that happened before I knew about that, and at this point, he's no longer going to be, so I feel like it's it's a totally separate situation in that way. So I can still see films that he, that his name is on, because I know that he didn't make them. No, it's a, it's a thorny problem, and mm-hmm. it's one of those that we've had to navigate in different ways, you know? Yeah. He was saying, like, oh, Roman Polanski... One of my other favorite directors is Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, <laughs> I, know. I know. You know, and that's and, and the thing is, is anyone is a student of film, you can't really divorce yourself from those films. Anyway, same thing with Woody Allen. You can't divorce yourself from the existence of Annie Hall or Manhattan as a piece of cinematic art that is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that is enjoyable. I like Annie Hall. Annie Hall has been one of my favorite films for a long time having that you know and you and you can begin to parse things out you can be like well this was before all any of those allegations <laughs> you know well this was before that you know can i watch this film that happened before all of that shit went down can i watch the ones that happened after and it's it's very hard i mean i've been i've personally greatly advocated the the idea that we have to be able to separate the art from the artist otherwise in some ways we're almost never going to be able to experience non-problematic art i mean people have talked about picasso as being an absolutely horrible human being. He made beautiful art. Mm -hmm. Um, At the same time, yeah, you're essentially funding these people. Every time you pay to go to see one of their films, every time you pay to buy a Blu-ray or a DVD or something, you're, you're giving them money. You're funding their work, and you're funding someone who's done or is doing uh, truly horrific things. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's that's a hard thing to have to deal with and to really consider where you are going to draw that line. Oh, I know. That's something I still struggle with. It's a side of, you know, an example of it. This summer for me was Joss Whedon. Oh, After yeah. all of that, yeah. that his wife's op-ed for, I mean, the venue the, where she published is Escaping Me, his ex-wife's op-ed that she wrote. Mm-hmm. And I will freely admit that Joss Whedon has been an idol of mine for a long, long time. And to have things said you know things said about him for you know things that have you know held up like held up holding him up for his female characters and his supposed views on feminism and it's that has been and you know don't worship your heroes and you know don't but it's that's a very hard topic and I know I still struggle with separating the art from the artist at times yeah I mean it is hard it's hard especially like when you know when actors you know, you know how hard it's going to be for me to watch a Ben Affleck movie now after all the shit that's come out about him in the last year or so? Like, oh, jeez, well, you know? Casey Affleck mm-hmm. last year. Yeah. Which, that's uh, that's another one that was a struggle for me. Because, well, for different reasons. Because, I don't, I don't know. I don't necessarily want to get into Casey Affleck. But, yeah, I mean, we just... it, it There's not any way, I think to draw a clear line and say this is what's acceptable and this is what's not if you're going to still watch anything besides like pure flicks films yeah <laughs> and even those are probably <laughs> questionable <laughs> so but no yeah. i think i think the question is is where does hollywood go from here yeah yeah, yeah. This is, the line in the sand has been drawn, how will they react? And how will they continue to react? Yeah, and it's it's good. The fact that Weinstein is out is good. It is. Um, the fact that there's been so much outcry publicly, both within, you know, the, 
the media with, within the Hollywood community and within just the general American public and I'm assuming the international public to a degree. Well, especially even the international good. film community. Sarah Pauly's op-ed, the New York Times yeah. op-ed is one of the, I was ecstatic to read that and I just thought she was so eloquent and said some really beautiful things and I was pleased to read that. Yeah, there, there's been such, there's it, the outrage has been a good thing. It's a good thing that people didn't just look at this and go like, oh, well. Oh, look, there's uh, Hollywood acting up again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So so that's that's positive yeah, as, as kind of confusing and soul-destroying in some ways as it's been. At the same time, there's there's might be progress made, you know, and it's probably going to be incremental. And there's going to be a lot of big questions that, you know, so this issue of art and artists, this issue of, you know, what we're funding and who we're funding and why and and just the just one final thing the thing that gets me is the to think about the number of careers that didn't happen because of him mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the you know people talk about the great art that the Weinstein company has made and that Miramax has made which is absolutely true but what art didn't get made because you know someone wouldn't sleep with him or a woman didn't want to didn't want to be in the same space with him mm-hmm. and that's that's horrific to think about just in terms of someone, as people who love films and who love, you know, art, the artistry of cinema to be like, oh, there's all of this great art that probably never happened because because of Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, it's interesting to think about those actresses that never went anywhere back in the 90s that you're like, gosh, whatever happened to her? Well, we probably know now. Well, I to think of when all of this started coming out, it was like Mira Sorvino. I remember thinking, you know, before all of this, you know, there were times in, you know, years back where it's like, oh, whatever happened to her after that? Oh, Best Supporting Actress Curse. It's like, no, that's, it's truly tragic. Yeah, it really makes me want to go back and look at that Supporting Actress Curse and look at how many of those winners were in Weinstein mm-hmm. films. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Because now I'm thinking, like, hmm, maybe that's the real curse. Yeah. So. Oh, God. It hurts. Just have to question everything we've ever known. Right? <laughs> it's like, oh, man. But I just want to also say that another thing that came out, or that came through all of this, has been that Me Too hashtag that's everywhere on Twitter and Facebook, yeah. and all the people that, women and men, mm-hmm. that are saying, hey, this has happened to me, and... You know, it just, it's really been shining a huge light, and it's so great to, well, it's not great to know that this is happening, but for someone who has been in situations more than once, it's been really cathartic to to know that I haven't been alone and that other people have experienced it too, and now to finally feel like we can be open about that and say, hey, this happened to me, so. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm glad that this is finally coming out in the open and that we can talk more freely about it. So maybe someday I'll share my story, but not today. <laughs> so it's, it's a good thing at the end, at the end of the day, this, this is, I think, finally going to be a good thing. Yeah. It's a step uh, toward healing. I, I think yeah. these are discussions which need to be had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So so let's get off of this ickiness and move on to <laughs> happy things. Last week, while we were recording, so we didn't mention it last week because I didn't have time to watch it five times in a row, they <laughs> released the new trailer for Star Wars The Last Jedi. 
<laughs> and Lauren was like, oh, yay. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Just a little. Well, I personally love Star Wars. I always have from the time I was a tiny little baby. That is a true story. And so watching the Last Jedi trailer, I was super excited. I don't know. What do you think, Kimberly? I, I'm right there with you. I've been watching the Star Wars movies on, you know, since we had them on VHS and, you know, the early nineties for me was when I started watching them. So each one I've, I have been, you guys make me feel so old. (laughs) No, I too, the, the, the videotape that we have it on, I still remember there was a down and out in Beverly Hills trailer that played right before. Nice. It was something that my parents recorded on, you know, right off the, you know, the VCR. And But I have been there for each one. I saw, I remember seeing the re-releases on, you know, for a sleepover birthday party down to, I was at every single prequel, you know, <laughs> as, you know, regretfully now, but I was there each time. So I will continue to be there. I thought this one is a bit bittersweet for me. I was a Carrie Fisher thing hit me real hard and yeah. I yeah. was very close to bawling yeah. during that trailer. But I think they've been taking this some interesting directions. I love Ray. I really excited to see where it goes yeah um oh man the Carrie Fisher thing that was I agree with you that was rough when I was a kid and people would ask oh who's your favorite princess I would say Princess Leia Mm -hmm. (laughs) like and I was totally serious I was obsessed with Princess Leia when I was a kid if I got to pick my my Halloween outfit it was either Princess Leia or Wonder Woman so you know that was I, I love them I love them both so much but But yeah, so one thing that I was very excited about in the trailer, and I hope that it plays out the way it looks, I'm very excited to see this idea that Rey is not all good, Mm -hmm. like the Mary Sue that they kind of set her up to be in Force Awakens. I'm really hoping that there are shades of gray there, because people are shades of gray. You know, nobody's black and white, good or bad. Nobody. And, well, some people are definitely bad but (laughs) 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 but you know for the most part everybody's got a little bit of both and so I'm really hoping that they do that that is something that carries through and that Ray does have some tendencies toward both in her when I've been intrigued as to where this is going to go because it it's been months now but the talk of who's the last Jedi and Ryan Johnson has said repeatedly Luke Mm-hmm. So what does that mean for Ray? I'm really interested to see where they take it. Well, the thing is that the last Jedi is where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. There's one last Jedi. That doesn't mean it's going to stay that way. True, true, touche. Or when Luke says in the in that first teaser that was looped over and over again, it's time for the Jedi to end, perhaps this is an opportunity for people who are not so black and white as the Jedi always were. You know, okay, maybe we don't need the Jedi anymore. Maybe we need good people fighting the good fight, but they don't have to be so, like, boxed into this, you know, have to shut out all of your emotions and have to keep everything in check and you can't have attachments and all those things. Like, maybe that is ultimately part of what led to the Jedi downfall in the first place, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Lauren, do you have any thoughts? <laughs> Uh, uh, yes, well, I was going to say that that's, that is kind of what leads 
to Anakin's downfall, isn't it? I mean, that, that's what leads him to slaughter all of the children is basically because he's pissed off that he can't be with the woman that he loves. Mm-hmm. Something, or something to that effect. I don't right. know. See, you're, ta- you're talking like I don't like Star Wars. I love Star Wars. <laughs> I love I love the original trilogy. Okay. Um, I also grew up on it. You know, I remember I remember watching Empire Strikes Back, and whenever I watched Empire Strikes Back as a kid, I had to then watch Return of the Jedi because it was not fair that Han like I thought Han Solo was dead. <laughs> it was very very upsetting, and so I always had to watch Return of the Jedi next just to reassure myself that Han Solo was okay. Mm-hmm. And I also loved the Ewoks because I was like a little kid, and I still love the Ewoks. I do too. I do too. Um, <laughs> so, so this, I mean, I, I think I complained about this earlier that the the problem I had with the Force Awakens was that it was basically the original Star Wars on steroids. That it was it was the same story, right? Done slightly differently and bigger, and you get all of kind of the nods to our old favorite characters, but. It's it's basically the same, you know, it's like the super, it's the super Death Star, but we're going to have a repetition of the same events um, yeah. that led to the destruction of the first one. The problem, again, that I'm seeing with uh, The Last Jedi, and I hope that I'm wrong, I do trust Ryan Johnson, but it's it looks like a retread of Empire Strikes Back. Down to we're going to go sit on an island and train to be a Jedi with the little old dude. At least she's not in a swamp. <laughs> oh, she's on an island this time instead of being in a swamp. No, I mean, but I mean, it's that it's that kind of relationship, and that you know, I I hope that they do something different with it. No, I get, I completely get what you're saying. I I remember when Force Awakens came out because that was a big criticism because it was very much you know it followed the exact same arc as Episode Four, right? The last or the A New Hope, um. But I remember reading something that J.J. Abrams, it was like an interview or something, and he was talking about how that was a very intentional choice. It wasn't just like, oh, hey, this worked, so we're just going to go with it. And that the themes from the original trilogy are carrying through this time, but they will be seen in new, different ways. And so I've always been, not always, but... For a very long time, I have been a, like, I will trust J.J. Abrams because mm-hmm. he very rarely lets me down. And so what he did with The Force Awakens, I loved. I thought it was great. And I think it set up something that is potentially going to be a really interesting, fascinating trilogy that, I don't know, I'm, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. And I agree with you that it is following the same arc, but I don't think it's laziness. I think it's a... I think it's a creative choice that is going to lead somewhere very good. Well, I that's that's what I hope. Yeah, I, I hope that ultimately there is actually a full a full arc that this comes out differently. You know, and it might be it might be something as simple and as complex as you know can't repeat the sins of the past, mm-hmm. and that this is an opportunity in some way to break out of that cycle. That the problem that I have with the Force Awakens and the problem that I fear for The Last Jedi is that so much of it is just that repetition. Only the original trilogy did it better. It's it's that sense that nothing is moving forward, particularly, in, in any way, including plot. And that that's why I kind of call bullshit on, on Abrams saying that, is that it isn't just themes. I can take themes. The, you know, the original Star Wars did all kinds of themes that had been done in multiple films mm-hmm. before. Um, including you know, Kurosawa's *The Hidden Fortress*, mm-hmm. 
so it's not just themes it's actual plot points mm-hmm. it's actual plot arc and that was what got me well down to down to actual shots i mean we yeah you know, sitting th- i we had somebody at the denver film society put together you know a compilation of uh, the damn busters movie from uh, the uh, spacing out the year when it was but he intercut that with the space battle outside the death star and it was to a t mm-hmm. well just to give you guys an idea of how old i am so i empire strikes back is one of my all-time favorite movies in fact when i'm pressed to say i say that it is my all-time favorite movie i remember sitting in the theater watching it when i was four years old and i remember hearing that famous I am your father line and being like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I actually remember that. That's how old I am. So there you go. All right. Well, we had another trailer. We had a couple of trailers this week, some big ones. The Black Panther trailer came out uh, just overnight. Did you guys get a chance to watch that one? I did. Yes. What'd you think of it? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll start on this one. I am very excited it looks, I'm not a huge Marvel fan, but this looks really cool. It's, I, I mean, I like pretty much every actor, I think, in this movie. And it just, it looks very exciting and really, like, energetic and different. And we're actually focusing on people of color and oh my god. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we finally got to that point. And I, I mean, I loved the character in... Uh, whatever that was, Civil War. Um, yeah. So I really enjoy. I really enjoyed him and the little sort of indications of of like what his backstory was and what what else was going to happen in the midst of this of you know this whole series. Uh, so I'm I'm excited about it and I'm especially excited about how excited so many people of color that I know online and in person are because it seems so important to actually have that representation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm in a major big budget film that is going to be about how how badass this guy is and i'm so i'm looking forward to it yeah definitely what do you think kimberly i am right there on the same page uh watching that i mean and he was i'm not well versed on black panther i've been i tend to stay towards marvel but he's just one character i've never i don't have the background in like i do in some others but he was definitely my probably one of my favorite parts of Civil War as well. That was not a movie I was a huge fan of. And this just looks like such a awesome continuation. Just that it looks stellar and energetic. I love how their the technology seems fascinating. They're just everything from the music to the performances. There's just it looks like this is gonna be really stellar. Yeah, uh, I'm going to say I was nervous when I saw the teaser trailer a couple months ago, and it focused so much on Andy Serkis and Martin Freeman. Yeah, agreed. And I was just like, okay, you're making this exciting movie about a character of color, and you're focusing on two white dudes. Like, Mm -hmm. come on, guys. (laughs) It's like, what's that all about? So I was very pleasantly surprised and excited to see this trailer. I was bitterly disappointed not to see tons of Sterling K. Brown's pretty face, but because he is in it too. But I was very excited to see um, Lupita Nyong'o, mm-hmm. Angela Bassett, 
Denai Guerrera from Walking Dead. Like, these ladies that I just love. I'm so excited. And I'm so excited to see them in this movie. And and I just, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. It looks super cool. And I'm I'm looking forward to just seeing more about Wakanda that we got a little bit of an introduction to in Civil War, which I actually liked. But I'm excited to really dive into that world and learn more about it. So, yeah. So Black Panther is a go. February 16th, 2018. And that brings us to Justice League. (laughs) Which, I think that trailer actually came out like a week and a half ago or so. It was right after New York, wasn't it? New York Comic Con? It might have been. Okay. Yeah, so, but we didn't get around to talking about it last week. But, um, so, okay. They released a trailer earlier this year. And it looked alright, you know, it had some moments that were, yeah, that looks pretty funny. You know, Bruce Wayne saying that his superpower is being rich, like, yeah, okay, haha, that's good. And then Wonder Woman came out and was a smash hit, deservedly so, because it's freaking awesome. It's still one of my favorite movies of the year. And then there were some things that happened where Zack Snyder had to step out of Justice League for personal reasons. So they brought Joss Whedon in, that big feminist awesome dude, whatever, <laughs> brought him in to help. He basically was just going to come in to finish pre-planned reshoots, and that was supposed to be it. Well, apparently this ended up being substantial rewrites and major reshoots, and then they brought out a new trailer that was supposedly going to focus very heavily on Wonder Woman because suddenly everyone, after 75 years, realizes what a badass she is. And then we got the new Justice League trailer, which, is it possible to unsee a movie without ever seeing it? Because that's how I feel right now. <laughs> like, I want to erase any knowledge of this movie from my brain. How the, do you guys They feel? are yeah. going to have an uphill battle. That's, yeah. that, and I was really surprised by that, that third, I think want to say the third trailer that's there was a second trailer out that right after kind of wonder woman they seemed like they made you know she was much more in the forefront it was a lot lighter it was a more fun trailer and then suddenly with this one i felt like i was watching batman versus superman again it felt worse than batman versus superman to me you know so dark and it felt like they were going back to taking them taking themselves so seriously maybe it's having superman in the trailer again for me but it's it felt like a complete 180 from where it looked like they were marketing the movie again and maybe it's because those reshoots i've heard were hell down to you know having to digitally you know re you know digitally take off henry cavill's mustache right (laughs) yeah yeah they couldn't have found some plot point where just like Superman grew a mustache. I mean, seriously. <laughs> like, why not? Exactly. Just, come on. Fits in with the disguise. Come on. Yeah, it's just like, yes, I'm in disguise now. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'm. I think I'm with. I think I'm with you guys. It's. I Wonder Woman obviously just threw DC through a loop to some degree, mm-hmm. and I even remember before it came out being like, oh God, please let it be okay because. Man of Steel is dire. Uh, Batman vs. Superman is even more dire. Suicide Squad was... What's worse than dire? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, I mean, Suicide Squad at least I found entertaining to a degree, whereas Batman vs. Superman, I was just like, this, I want to die. This is so boring. (laughs) 
and yeah, Justice Justice League unfortunately looks like it's more in that direction than in in the direction of Wonder Woman. So I don't know. The only thing I'm all I really want is for like this to actually just be a Wonder Woman movie in which she's like, okay, boys, just just stand back. Yeah. You know, maybe Jason Momoa can be there for like eye candy or whatever. Uh, we can look at his forearms and really enjoy that part. They were using him really well in that second trailer, I thought, and <laughs> it's. There, I have I have feelings and they're hard to put yeah. apart, you know, put out there. Well, one of the problems that I saw was okay. So Wonder Woman was great and people loved it, but almost everyone that I have talked to has agreed that it kind of it struggles in the last like ten fifteen minutes where it gets super mm -hmm. CGI heavy, and there's that big epic battle scene, and it starts to look a little cheesy and it just doesn't hold up as well overall still a great movie but you know that part is problematic right so then when i'm watching this trailer i'm like okay did they not listen to anything we were saying because that the worst parts of the trailer they're 100 cgi and it looks mm -hmm. ridiculous so i don't I think just, dc no knows hopes. what messages to take from their movies i think they they somehow managed to look at what people are trying to you know something like wonder woman and they managed to pull the wrong takeaways yes from it yes exactly all right well i'll, I'll, speaking I'll see of it wonder woman, <laughs> i'll probably see I'll, it i'll be there i, I don't know if i'll like, like it, it but i'll be there <laughs> I'll go with a totally open mind because <laughs> I am a fair critic that does everything open-mindedly. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. No. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so speaking of Wonder Woman, a movie came out this weekend, Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman, and it is about the psychologist who created the character of Wonder Woman and his life and his relationships. Now, I did not get around to seeing the film, but Lauren and Kimberly, you both did. Mm -hmm. So why don't you two just go for it? Well, I guess I'll, I'll start. I'll start by saying that I love this movie. And the reason why I love this movie is because it really isn't just about Professor Marston. It is about the three of them. It is about him, his wife, Elizabeth, uh, who's played by Rebecca Hall, and the the sort of woman that comes, the young woman that comes into their lives, played by Bella, I think it's Bella Heathcott? Yep. Yeah. And it's about their relationship. It is about the way that they navigate their relationship. And it is a relationship. This is a polyamorous relationship. All the way that the film depicts it, all three of them are in love with each other. They... And it's very complicated. This most of the film takes place in the 1920s, I believe, and then goes all the way through to the creation of Wonder Woman and the problems that Wonder Woman ran into because of perceptions of perversion and things like that. And, and where all of this comes from in the relationship between these three people. But it's a very positive film. It's a happy film. There's a lot of it's very like passionate and erotic in, in many ways. And it's one of the least objectifying films at the same time. So you've got this entire story that is being told about this polyamorous relationship between a man and two women and, uh, and also two women and also a woman and a man and all of these different combinations of their, their romance. And it manages to not photograph them as 
as objects in any way. Uh, and you've also, I mean, you've also got stuff like bondage is coming in, issues of BDSM, issue gender gender roles, gender fluidity, the fluidity of sexuality, all of this stuff. And it's treated with kindness, with decency, with understanding, and ultimately with love. And that's the, it just produces like this beautiful story that I, I absolutely adored. I, f- watching it through, I felt, you know, I was picking on, on so much of the same things, really can't say it much better. Um, I did, I couldn't, can't help but say it's Rebecca Hall's world and we're all just living in it. I thought she was absolutely amazing throughout the entire film. She was, starting from the beginning, she was my absolute favorite character. And continuing right through, she put out yet another amazing performance. Um, I My perceptions, I felt they started to struggle a bit towards the middle. And yeah. in terms the entering suburbia, and I, the str- I don't know if it was with the structure, I really liked how they play that they built the relationship between Olive and Elizabeth at the beginning of the film the 1920s portion when they're still at the university when we got to suburbia and kind of the 30s and 40s and I hate to say it Marston becomes a slightly bigger part you have the female characters regulated a bit more to the more traditional roles something in that portion didn't play well for me and I don't know if it was how it was structured or what but it I lost a bit of the you know the luster for me that there was at the beginning but over that was a very kind of a tiny nitpick for me just absolutely beautiful beautiful movie I thought the performances were great yeah I I agree with you it wobbles a little bit in the middle of the film and there's a lot of elision of time Mm -hmm. and I think that 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 might be part of it. It's just, it's as though Robinson, who, Angela Robinson, who directed it, is not quite certain how to move her narrative forward. And she's got a lot of ground that she wants to cover to get to the creation of Wonder Woman. Right. But I, I even said this in my review when I, I wrote it a couple of weeks ago, which was that the least interesting part of the movie was actually about the creation of Wonder Woman. Agreed. Uh, she's actually a very, a very, you know, the way that it's treated, it's like, oh, this is Wonder Woman, this is the story of Wonder Woman. It's just like, but it's not really, it's the story of these three people. And and she's just kind of become symbolic of, of the three of them. I mean, it felt like, it, it almost felt to me more like the two of them. To me, Elizabeth yeah. and Olive stood out so much. They did so much so well with those, that relationship. There was one shot I'm thinking of toward, in first act getting towards the second I believe they are at they're they're sitting in the office and the camera is quite literally you're looking at Elizabeth from Olive's perspective and Marston's character is talk Marston is talking however he's not in frame or he's you can just Mm -hmm. see him in the corner of the frame and it's about this relationship between they they build up this relationship between these two women and their feelings and their admiration for each other and there are portions where he's hardly in it. They're not looking at him. He's not yeah. in frame. And towards the middle of the film, as you start to see him more and more, was for me, was where it started wobbling. I think that's a good point. It's, yeah, and um, the way the way that they're photographed, the way that the two of them are photographed uh, is, there, there are definitely some images that it's from his perspective in seeing them and being like, these are, 
I, and I do like the I did like the way that Luke Evans played Marston. Right, and I, I was going to say I don't think it's a problem with Luke Evans's performance. But he's what I liked about it was that he's looking at them and he's not just he's looking at them sexually, yes, but he's also looking at them as full and complete women right. that he really admires, that he just thinks they're remarkable. And that's what he that's what the film argues is what he puts into Wonder Woman mm-hmm. is and he you know there's some there's some great lines that he says about um uh, particularly about elizabeth but they're all of these characteristics that he just adores about these two women become what wonder woman is and it's very it isn't venerating it isn't putting them on a pedestal it is very much treating them as human beings and as all of the kind of wonderfulness that he sees women as being and that's i like that that's very positive (laughs) so one thing that Obviously, I haven't seen the movie, so I don't I don't know how it all plays out. But one thing about the marketing of this film is that it's really driven home that this is the incredible true story. And every trailer I saw, it said the incredible true story behind the creation of Wonder Woman. Now, there have been some people who have said that this isn't actually true. Um, I don't know if you know about Christy Marston, who is the granddaughter mm-hmm. of... Elizabeth and what's his first name? William. 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 Okay. So it's his, it's their granddaughter. And she says that the relationship between Elizabeth and Olive is definitely not at all what it was depicted in the film. And even the director, Angela Robinson admits that she left things open to interpret. She interpreted things based on what she saw, which she admitted was very little. Now, do you think that it matters to the film whether it's true or not? Well, I'll I'll jump in and I'll start here. I think this is a very tricky subject matter. I think that they are walking. I think she's, she, I mean, and there's a, another question in my mind I'll bring up here in a second. I was, because I was just writing in this, in my review, I think she did what she needed to do to craft the message she needed to craft. Uh, in terms of that relationship, there, there's been a veil drawn over it by history. We can't really take, we can't look into how things actually were. We only have Christine's perspective. There's a, you know, if you remove the, you know, the female kind of the polyamorous relationship of it and you tackle it for more because I believe the article from what I was reading Christina saying it was more William's relationship with these two women individually and that they didn't have a relationship with each other not a sexual relationship right it was more she she classifies it as living as sisters rather than lovers and if you remove this bond from these two women suddenly you run the very real risk of the Marston character coming off like a manipulative you know a a manipulative man who's using these two women for you know oh let's you know using these two women for just to have everything that he wants so they you run treating it like a character seeing it as a writer looking at these characters I think she did what she needed to do to make the movie we got if things were any different it this could have been a very different movie however it also crafts very real questions for me of historical license how much historical license do we have when you're dealing with real people and that opens up a whole new can of worms 
yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I, I do think that we're, we would be foolish to look at fictional films and, and say, this is what history is. And it's the same thing with any, almost any film you can name. If you look at Gladiator and say, this is what ancient Rome was like. If you look at Braveheart and say, this is what William Wallace was like. It's highly unlikely that that was true. Now, you know, the Marston issue is because you do have people within living memory. You have people that remember them. You have people that, you know, family members, et cetera, that have actual, you know, experiences. How... I don't, I don't see how a granddaughter can necessarily be like, this is the only way that this relationship existed. Right. Because obviously she has a particular perspective on the relationship and on the people that she knew at the time. That doesn't say that, you know, she's, that she's lying or anything like that or that, that, or that her perspective isn't true. Um, I think that there's enough room for, as Angela Robinson has said, for speculation that it's perfectly legitimate for her to actually treat this as being a polyamorous relationship, as being three people being in love with each other versus two people being in love with the same man and sharing him. Uh, and I absolutely agree that it, the film, once you remove the polyamorous relationship from the material of the film, the film ceases to work. Mm -hmm. Is that in some way... I, I the the difficulty that I have is I can't see how it would possibly be a betrayal of Marston or of either of those two women by proposing this romantic and sexual relationship exi existing between the three of them because it is positive. This isn't like this isn't prudishly uh, saying that you know there are a bunch of hedonists or anything like this. This is a this is probably the only mainstream film that I can think of that actually treats of a polyamorous relationship in any sort of a truly positive and healthy way. And I would hate to, to sacrifice that because a granddaughter said, well, that's not how it was. Well, I just find it interesting that you say that the film falls apart if you remove that relationship. If The reason I find that interesting is if that relationship didn't exist, then what is the story to tell? And Christy Marston says that the real story that's not depicted in the film is even more interesting. But what ultimately is this, to you guys who have seen it, what is the ultimate point of the film? So what I think the point of this film is, is that at the heart of this narrative is a story about three people who are deeply, deeply in love with each other, who are attempting to navigate these very few fluid sexual and gender roles at a time when those roles were rigidly enforced. And that this is, again, one of those mainstream film, few mainstream films that really tries to depict human sexuality with both er with eroticism, without objectification, and with an ultimate message of this is about love. And I don't know where you would possibly get another. So if you were to say we're going to completely we're going to completely create a fictional story out of this i don't know that you would have the same power i don't know if i could possibly even say it better than that that hits for me as well that hits the nail completely on the head um in terms of the market like you said the i'm a little confused myself by the what i'm seeing in the articles about the real story being true or you know the real story being just as interesting I mean, maybe I'm coming, it's, I mean, coming at it, obviously, from not knowing, I think 
in those articles that I was reading, I mean, the bond that the two, you know, these two women shared in her perspective as being more like sisters. Now, I, I, I don't think I can follow up what you just said on it, Lauren. I think you did an amazing job. <laughs> okay. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it's interesting reading Christy Marston's interview and the things that she says because it, it does seem like she has some kind of an agenda, but at the same time, it's like she's saying things like, oh, I think it would be great if they really had been lovers. So it's like, I don't really know where where the truth lies but i think it is an interesting question of like you were saying lauren about you know when we have historical films you know where is the line between fact and fiction and and how much is it okay to speculate on how it could have been and does that take away from the real story ultimately i think that that's the beauty of film and the beauty of art is that we can put our interpretations on it. We can put our own perspective on things, especially when it's something that, you know, we're going back 75 years. So yeah. do you have anything else you'd like to add about this movie? Either of you? Well, go see it. I, it's, yeah, it's I would good. say go see it. <laughs> All right. Well, Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman is in theaters across the country. It actually opened in 1200 theaters. Had a bit of a rough weekend, but it's still out there, so it should be near you. Okay, so I didn't go see Professor Marston and the Wonder Women, but I did see another film this weekend, which was Marshall, which stars Chadwick Boseman, our Black Panther. And uh, he stars alongside Josh Gad and Sterling K. Brown. And so it's labeled a little bit as a biopic of Thurgood Marshall. Actually, not a little bit. It's labeled as a biopic of Thurgood Marshall, but it's not. It is a film that is a snapshot of one particular case that Thurgood Marshall argued back in 1941. This is just within the few months before the bombing of Pearl Harbor. So everyone knows things are happening in Europe. Everyone knows about Hitler's rise to power here in the United States. But we are not at war yet. Josh Gad plays a local lawyer who happens to be Jewish. And he gets wrapped up in this case. So Sterling K. Brown plays Joseph Spell, who, this is all a true case that happened. He was accused of raping his female boss, his employer. He was a chauffeur that worked for the family. The husband was out of town. She accused him of rape. She wasn't murdered or anything like that. But she says that he tried to kill her. So he's arrested and put on trial. Thurgood Marshall was the local lawyer for the NAACP. He was out of the New York office. He was being sent all over the country. And basically, at the time, he would go in to situations where the defendant was innocent and was only being arrested because of racial abuses, racial problems. And so that's what this case is. So Josh Gad is a local attorney in Connecticut. They can't the judge refuses to recognize Thurgood Marshall. So he's allowed to sit second chair, but he is not allowed to speak in court, which means Josh Gad as Samuel Friedman, who ends up becoming another lawyer for the NAACP. Uh, he ends up, this guy who's never tried a criminal case in his life, ends up defending this poor guy for, for rape. And 
So the film is really interesting because it has a lighter tone than I was expecting. I thought it was going to be this like dark, gritty courtroom drama type movie, and it's not. It's, there is definitely some of that, but it's a little bit lighter. It, um, what I liked about it was that it takes a time. You know, this is way before Brown versus Board of Education, way in the middle of segregation, and it really shows a perspective that is what I liked about it is it shows a perspective that is very something that's just obvious, you know, like, so there's, to me, this isn't a film that's divisive. You just look at it and you go, yeah, this is racial bullshit. Like how are these people getting away with this stuff? And why would anybody have ever been okay with that? Like in 2017, we can look at that movie and see the things that happen to Thurgood Marshall to Joseph Spell, even to Josh Gad, or I mean, sorry, to Samuel Friedman, who was Jewish, and, you know, Jewish people were also persecuted at the time, and so they're all dealing with their own things, and we can look back on it now and see how real, how ridiculous it is, and in, you know, in so many films that focus on racial issues, they take a very you know, they tend to take a very heavy-handed stance on it, and this didn't, and it didn't need to, and I liked the fact that it kind of took a lighter approach, because it just felt very, like, anybody watching it can just enjoy the film, but they can also just feel like, yeah, this is a big duh. Like, none of this is right. This shouldn't be happening. And so, I say, go see it. It's good. Chadwick Boseman is good. There's not enough Sterling K. Brown, but then there's never enough Sterling K. Brown. So... There you go. That's also in theaters now. Sounds good. I'm glad that you liked it. I've, yeah. I, I've, I've wondered about this film because I, I saw advertisements for it and then I was like, what is this? And why hasn't this been spoken about more? And then, yeah, great. You know, yeah. When I was watching it, I was thinking there were actually quite a number. The theater was not full, but I saw it like the first screening of the day on Saturday morning. But I was surprised by the number of people that were there. But still, I was just like, why are more people not talking about this? I don't understand why the studio's not. It's not getting um, marketed nearly enough. No. Yeah. No, it's really not. And I don't get why. Because it's it's a lot of fun. It's a, I mean, it, it, it's as fun as it can be, given the subject matter. But it's, it's enjoyable. There are some parts that are just, like, funny. Like, there's a scene where uh, Josh Gad's Sam has... This part's not funny, but he had just gotten beaten up, and he's home, and someone knocks on the door, and he's like, he and his wife are just kind of like, uh, and so he grabs a knife, but it's this tiny little paring knife, <laughs> and his wife, like, hands him a butcher knife, she's like, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's right, women know what's up, you know? So, anyway, but yeah, good movie, go see it. So, now you have two good movies to go see this week, so get out there. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for episode five. And as always, if you have any questions, concerns, comments, any fun games you want us to play, anything like that, you want to know what Kimberly's favorite Halloween movie is or Lauren's favorite, I don't know, <laughs> Wonder Woman is, <laughs> <laughs> let us know. We are on Twitter at Citizen Dame Pod. And you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash citizendame. And Lauren, where else can they find you? 
Uh, they can find me on Twitter at LH Business. Uh, that's I Z N E S S. And also on uh, I have my WordPress blog is suddenly a shot rang out.com. All right. And Kimberly? Uh, you can find me on Geek Girl Authority and on Twitter at KPR624. Thanks so much. And I am at Karen M. Peterson on Twitter and Instagram. And from there, you can find me all sorts of other places. So. For all of us at Citizen Dame, thanks so much. Have a great week.